It's a sad fact that all footballers have to shoulder their fair share of hatred and abuse. But for an unfortunate minority, they stand to be remembered as public enemy number one. Whether tarnished by a costly mistake, a controversial transfer or a combustible temper, these nostalgic names must accept their place as football's pantomime villains. And now they're placing our 11. Arthur, welcome to the public enemy 11. Thanks for the welcome, Ben. It's very exciting to uh, discuss this one. In contrast to all the other 11s that don't fill me with excitement. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a that's a joke. Yeah, um, we're yet to be exciting as a podcast, but I think hopefully this one is a little bit, it might have like a little tinge of kind of anticipation about it. Yeah, and obviously this public enemy 11 is, is quite subjective. You know, there are some players... Uh, on this list that may have been, you know, vehemently loved by their fan base, but hated by us as neutrals. Today, we're employing a 4-4-2 formation, uh, perhaps the public enemy of formation. In an age where we're employing more and more flamboyant attacking formations, 4-4-2 is quite a sort of back-to-basics, rigid formation. So do, do you agree with that, Ben? Yeah, it's gone from hero to zero in the last kind of 10 years. At 11pod is our Twitter handle. Please let us know who you would have had in our public enemy 11. Okay, in goal in our public enemy 11, um, someone who was vehemently hated, but I was surprised to find this out, Arthur. Antonios Nicopolidis. Oh, he was an ancient soul, kind of grey-haired and iconic yeah. in that sense. Who'd have thought that the Greek triumph in that tournament could possibly be tainted for any of their players? Well, Nicopolidis was booed by swathes of Greek football fans when he lifted the trophy. he just announced before the tournament started that he would be leaving Panathinaikos after 15 years and moving to bitter rivals Olympiakos. And this is something that people didn't really do. Um, he'd become public enemy number one as a result. And the two Greek giants normally play out in the eternal derby each year, which is a great name. Um, and it's been described by the BBC as Europe's maddest derby. Like many across Europe, there's a class element to it. So Panathinaikos are supported by the upper class, typically, and Olympiakos by the working class. And it often erupts both on the pitch and off it. So once you've kind of developed a loyalty to one of these clubs, very few players or, or fans, in fact, would ever dream of making the leap across. But despite this perceived betrayal, in, in truth, it would be hard to accuse Antonios of being disloyal. He spent seven years at Olympiakos. In fact, he only played for three clubs throughout his whole career. He never left Greece. Um, he played 90 times for his national team and helped raise the country's profile on the football scene, no doubt. And as a player, he was known for composure, cleverness and simplicity of the game. He wasn't hugely tall, but he was very good with his feet and his positional sense meant he was an effective shot stopper. Because of the nature of the clubs he played for, he was incredibly well decorated as well. Um, on top of that Euro 2004 trophy, he won 11 league titles, nine Greek Cups and three Super Cups, as well as being an eight-time Greek goalkeeper of the year. So it just seems like 
such a shame that his reputation was tarnished. And again, Arthur, this is a kind of very particular type of public enemy surrounding a controversial transfer. You're quite right, Ben. When you move between clubs, it's... uh... Well, actually, moving between clubs is just a pretty standard element of the game. But when you move between two fierce rivals, it's something altogether different. This was a goalkeeper who actually is absolutely coming back to me. The man who looked like a pensioner really while he was playing. He was, but he, he, kind of attractive as well, like a sort of George yeah. Clooney-esque The silver fox. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he could do like um, espresso adverts out in Greece or something. Yeah, you're right. I I um, was also intrigued to hear that the Olympiakos Panathinaikos clash is called the Eternal Derby because in my book I had that down as the the, the Belgrade Derby, the mm. Partizan versus Red Star game. Yeah, you're spot on, and it is this kind of term which is used across Europe quite quite frequently actually to describe almost the main derby in that country. I suppose a bit like El Clasico and La Classique, is it, is it in France? They kind yeah. of use that term to describe that main event on the domestic scene Mm. um i think another little interesting tidbit about nicopolidis before we move on this is from an article on the sportsman by andy edgeworth while still playing at olympiakos the then 37 year old alienated himself further from the average fan um it was when greece plunged into economic turmoil um he just moved for quite a significant chunk of money um, and he took up a job as a civil servant in the northern Athenian suburb of Kephissia. He was actually a gardener. Under Greek law, sports champions are eligible to be offered apparently simple but well-paid positions in the public sector so that they can focus on furthering their sporting careers without worry of, of money issues. Um, but obviously the people of Greece were fuming about this. They were struggling to make ends meet. Um, and the fact that one of their richest sports stars was taking up a job that really should have been for the people and was rumoured to be earning him an extra £1,500 a month was really controversial. And um, so it's a shame, really. He just seems like this smiley goalkeeper that achieved such success with Greece, but peel back the layers. And, and actually, there's a lot of people that hate Antonios Nikopoulidis. On the left of defence now, it's Ben Thatcher. Oh, yeah. I, I suppose an enemy for his hard tackling and aggressive nature. Yeah, that's quite right. He was um, a player with a career of more than 300 league games, all of which were in the top two divisions. Um, No doubt an absolutely talented defender. He won player of the year at Millwall, um, commanded a £5 million fee back in 2000 at Spurs um, and earned England under 21 caps and then Welsh senior caps. But you're quite right. He was known for moments of violence on the field of play that followed him around. First at Wimbledon, uh, when he was banned for two matches for elbowing Nick, Nicky Summerby of Sunderland in the head in the build-up to a goal. Um, missed by the referee, but action was taken after the game. And, and the second incident, really, and undoubtedly more infamous, was in August 2006, in a game between Manchester City and Portsmouth. Whilst challenging Pedro Mendes for a loose ball, uh, Thatcher viciously led with his elbow, knocking Mendes into the advertising hoardings and rendering him unconscious. Mendes required oxygen at pitch side and suffered a seizure whilst being transferred to hospital. 
He was discharged the next day, but remained under medical supervision. And incredibly, Thatcher, again, was not given a red card. He was only given a yellow card um, that was investigated and disciplined by the FA. Greater Manchester Police noted receipt of many statements of complaint uh, for the incident, which is quite shocking for a tackle. So I think he was given two separate bans, one by Man City and one by the FA, that all combined to give him a 15-game ban suspended for two years and an upfront eight-game ban and an 80-grand fine. Uh, So it's one of those things that, that really, you know, was a shocking moment and was dealt with decisively. Um, He said, that's one moment in my life I wish I could erase. I've got children now with the computers and YouTube. They've seen that, having to explain that to your children. I felt terrible for the player and what I'd done. A massive moment of regret. I got hate email through the post, called everything. I felt for the player and then for my mum in the supermarket. My little girls at school and parents are whispering. It's just 30 seconds of your life you wish you could have back. If I could have just shut the ball down instead of doing that, I've left an indelible mark on the game of football and it's not for anything good. Like I said, he was a great, great player, but these moments of madness have tarnished his career. And actually, he's a good friend of my boss, Tim. And I played a round of golf with him and he's the loveliest guy, like really lovely guy and um, has some absolute cracking stories, has got a wicked sense of humour. And yeah, he was he was absolutely a public enemy for these challenges. Yeah, so often the way, isn't it, that they're they're gentle and and nice to be around off the pitch. Uh, some of these kind of aggressive footballers. I was surprised to learn he's only five foot ten. I kind of saw yeah. him as this kind of beast of a player, almost possibly because <laughs> of the incidents that you think of when you think of Ben Thatcher. Uh, and alongside him, how one incident can mar a career. Um, the tackle on Eduardo in 2008. And therefore my pick is Martin Taylor. Yeah, that's really weird because for some reason in my mind, it's stuck that it was Ryan Shawcross who did that tackle. Well, you say that Ryan Shawcross was the um, Aaron Ramsey tackle. Oh, but yeah, had a, unfortunately, similar consequence. And, and actually he would have been a good pick because Arsenal fans hate him for that reason. But again, against Arsenal, a poor challenge and something which kind of unfortunately brought a lot of hatred to Martin Taylor. He was a six foot four giant centre half um, who showed promise at an early age, playing for England at under 18 and under 21 level. Uh, Once loans at Darlington and Stockport had ignited his confidence, Taylor would thrive at Blackburn in the late 90s and early noughties. Blackburn manager Graham Souness felt that Taylor had enough ability to reach the very top, but had for some time believed that without adopting a more aggressive physical approach, one befitting his six foot four inch frame, which caused his teammates to nickname him Tiny, he would not fulfil his potential. And that fascinated me. It was it was so striking that Souness was almost critical of Taylor for not being physical enough, despite his frame. And we all know what happened next uh, he wasn't a no-nonsense defender at all he was quite good with his feet um, and eventually he earned a 1.25 million pound move to Birmingham uh, which has enabled him to consolidate a place in a Premier League team but then the incident Taylor made a reckless lunge for the ball ill-timed and dangerous caught Eduardo just above the ankle with studs showing and the rest is history 
Taylor, in truth, was not previously known as a dirty player, but he'd get pelters from the media and fans, including death threats. Um, and even Arsene Wenger called for him to be banned for life from the game. Um, because of the fact that Eduardo was also now out of the European Championships, this hate mail not only came from Arsenal supporters, but also from Croatia fans who launched a fairly vitriolic bid to get him banned. Um, they reacted angrily towards him and dubbed him in the press as the Butcher of Birmingham, which is a bit of a striking and bizarre nickname to be attributed to you. Out of interest, actually, Arthur, in um, in 2012, Taylor was the third most common surname in Premier League history. Uh, there were 14 of them. So I wanted to see if you could guess what the uh, the, the top two were. Um, that's quite tricky. I would I would think something like Davis. Or no, no Smith. No, but thank you for playing off there. That's really great. <laughs> Who um, is it? It's Jones and oh, of Johnson. Oh, of course. Johnson's a very obvious one, actually. Yeah. Really obvious, yeah. But Martin Taylor, yes. He's, he's in go. our 11. Um, one thing just to, to bear in mind that I think is interesting is Martin Taylor um, obviously received a lot of pelters for this tackle. And conversely, I guess maybe it's to do with a, the team he plays for, and B, how good he was as a player. But Roy Keane for actively and intentionally trying to hurt Alfie Harland yeah. doesn't get nearly so much abuse. And right, then right. this purely unintentional Martin Taylor tackle gets, you know, um, I mean, he gets hounded uh, for it. So I, I find that deeply unfair. So I think he's a he's a sort of, well a public enemy who really shouldn't be a public enemy. Mm. Fair point. And joining Martin at centre-back is Alan Stubbs. Oh, Stubbsy. Yes. Love Stubbsy. Um, who um, who do you think that he played most games for in his career? Everton, definitely. Incredibly, it's not. Wow. Who <laughs> I thought it? that too. 124 games for Everton, 202 for Bolton. I, I didn't even know he played for Bolton. <laughs> I, thought, I thought you might say like Celtic or something like that. No. But... Bizarre. Wow. Anyway, um, he was a solid defender. When Bruce Rioch left for Arsenal, he tried unsuccessfully to bring him with him. Uh, and Celtic broke their transfer record to sign him. Um, I think a solitary England B cap is a hallmark of any classic 11 player. Um, unfortunately, the discovery of um, testicular cancer, its re-emission and later re-emergence brought an end to his time north of the border with, with Celtic. Um, and he headed south to Everton. He would go on to become a mainstay of their back line, captaining them to fourth place in the Premier League and Champions League qualification. A stint very few people remember him for was when in 2005 he signed for Sunderland. I've got an article um, here on the Roker Report, which is a real um, real favourite source of information for us as well. They say, like a lover pitifully pining for his ex, Sunderland were merely a rebound for Stubbs. <laughs> there's, not, there's not been many more uncommitted to Sunderland than Stubbs was. <laughs> 
who wasn't shy to show where his loyalties lay. Unfortunately, he suffered a little bit with injury whilst he was there. And whilst Mm. sidelined, he was spotted watching Everton play Villarreal. Um, He also reportedly celebrated Tim Cahill's 93rd minute winner for the Blues from the Sunderland bench. Oh, no. (laughs) And when he did play... He was hideously disappointing. He put in an embarrassing performance in the 4-1 drubbing against Portsmouth. Um, And after 10 games, he was back on Merseyside, happy to see the back of the Black Cats. He equated his re-signing for Everton to being out with injury for six months, even saying, I have probably seen as many Everton games as Sunderland games this season. That says it all, to be honest. (laughs) Oh man, I had no idea about this, about Stubbsy. It's not good, really. I think when you go to a club, even if you're like a massive, massive Everton fan, you know, I think you've just got to like tone that side of you down and like yeah. look at that and you're, you know, in, in your bedroom at the end of a day's training with Sunderland, go and watch the highlights. Don't, don't, yeah. you know, celebrate their goals, watch their games, everything like that. It's just outrageous. And this was a good objectively this was a a good signing for Sunderland they'd signed a player with an enormous amount of experience um, when they needed it most so there's a um, Sunderland message board called ready to go Um, and there's a thread entitled Alan Stubbs the massive shithouse (laughs) (laughs) basically it's just like a collection of fans (laughs) discussing their mutual hate of him and I just in researching this 11, I just I quite enjoyed, you know, digging up hates of fans that I just had no idea. Not only did I think Alan Stubbs didn't play for Sunderland, but I didn't know he was he was a, a figure of ridicule and hate there. No. Um, yeah, I thought he'd be a worthy addition. And, and I'd be delighted to um, to hear from any Sunderland fan who who wants to discuss his shithousery. Yes, I really like that, actually. I feel like we've got a centre-back who's a public enemy for one violent incident and a centre-back who's a public enemy for just being a bit of an arsehole. And and that (laughs) seems right. I like it. And on the right, then? Nelson Vivas. He's the right man. Uh, He is the right man. Yes. Um, Argentinian Oh, yes. So Argentinian. Good. Yes, very plucky. Uh, was just he fine. Tiny? He was very small. You're absolutely right. We've got. Sounded like you were about to say how, how yeah. tall. Oh yeah, he's five foot five. Um, God, well he was. I think I don't think he's grown since he played. So five foot five. So not built like your average defender, but his tenacity made him a suitable right back and attracted a one point six million pounds purchase by Arsene Wenger from Boca Juniors. Is a small right back ever anything other than tenacious no <laughs> they're plucky they're tenacious they're hard working obviously, obviously diminutive yeah diminutive exactly <laughs> um oh i've got a couple more words here he was agile um <laughs> and competent going forwards but his lack of discipline and tendency to lose concentration in key moments ultimately made him an unpopular figure at Arsenal. This is just any five foot five right back, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> he, he was entrusted with just 40 league caps in three years for the Gunners, often as a backup or substitute to the likes of Lee Dixon, Nigel Winterburn and Silvino. 
and errors punctuated those appearances. He had a setback when he missed a penalty um, as Arsenal crashed out at the 99-2000 League Cup to Middlesbrough. But his most prominent mistake came the season before when he left Leeds's Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank completely unmarked at the far post and effectively knocked Arsenal out of the title race. Further killing Vivas's Arsenal career, after the match, Wenger publicly blamed him for the goal, saying, we made a huge tactical error, which is unusual for us to make a mistake like that. Nelson Vivas was in a very bad position at the far post. And so I, I thought for a second that was going to be a, a quite nice veiled insult of Vivas, but saying yeah. we made a mistake, a yes. tactical error we don't usually... And then, no, Nelson Vivas did. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, he, he kind of ended up basically blaming the whole title race on him, which was kind and kind of led the Arsenal fans to give him even more pelters. He was quite dirty too, a fiery Latin American temper. He said, I remember Freddie Jumberg baptised me, the kicking machine. He said, I've always done everything to try to win. I'd ask for yellow cards for the opposition players. And then inside the dressing room, they would all nag at me because that is a lack of sportsmanship. Even during the training sessions, I got knocks and cuts. So eventually Wenger gave up on him. The Arsenal fans had long given up on him uh, and he was sent out on loan and sold. But another team he played for and actually managed now also have a bittersweet relationship with him. And that's Argentinian side Quilmes. Whilst managing the side in 2013, They'd only uh, gathered 14 points from 12 matches. And after a one-all draw at home to Atletico Rafaela, Vivas went after a fan who claimed he'd been insulting him uh, and threw three punches at him. He resigned immediately afterwards and was seen by many as heightening Argentinian football's violent image across Europe. So as a sort of theatrical manager who was hot-tempered, uh, he actually once also ripped his shirt open when protesting a referee's decision, by the way. He, he was seen quite negatively by the press in Argentina. It, it wasn't wasn't really the kind of brand they were going for. And that's all without mentioning the unforgivable move from Boca Juniors to River Plate. Yes, exactly. Oh. So, um, yeah, Nicopolidis has a run for his money with Vivas at right back. Um, yeah. Sound like, sounds like he pissed off a, a lot of people in his I think career. he did. I think he did. I, I wouldn't say he's an enemy of the podcast. He's kind of classic the 11, Nelson Vivas. So I've actually considered him for a number of our 40 11s so far. Um, he's finally got in for one of the most negative aspects of his career. So sorry about that, Nelson. Um, but you are in now. Welcome. Challenge there by Thatcher, which Glenn Johnson didn't like. And there's a rather dazed looking player on the deck. So, Arthur, I think I know the answer to this genuine question. Which football team do you hate more than any other? Reading. Really? <laughs> That's not the answer I wanted to hear. Yeah, I'm afraid it's just it's the truth, you know. Goodness me. And that is Paul. You know, you know that, Ben. Okay, thank goodness. A lie from Arthur. Um, I actually thought we'd try to establish as a podcast during this interlude 
the most hated football teams of the 90s, noughties and 10s and ultimately crown one the most hated football team of our lifetime since our birth. So I've got five for you to choose from and a little description of each. Um, I'll be interested in your thoughts. Number one um, is the Juventus side of 2005-2006. Now, they were kind of hated anyway because of the dominance in Italy that Juventus typically have. So they're kind of like the Man United, I suppose, of their league. Um, But this was the year that the Italian football scandal erupted around corruption. Uh, Juventus were stripped of their title and relegated to Serie B, uh, bringing the game into disrepute. And they also had several unlikable players, um, the likes of Trezeguet, who I always thought was a bit of a moaner, Adrian Mutu, um, obviously his own drug scandal off the pitch, and Patrick Vieira, who you kind of either love or hate. Um, I was probably in the hate camp. So what do you think of them? Yeah, I mean, not a particularly popular side. I have to say, when you first mentioned Juventus, I thought you were going to talk about the 1996 side who beat Ajax in the Champions League final and had those doping allegations you know, over them. No, I mean, not a, not a side I absolutely hated, um, I wouldn't say. I think you mentioned the likes of Trezeguet. He was a bit of a... Um, bit of a maverick potentially in the changing room at times but um yeah I I, I mean I didn't I didn't dislike the yeah. guy you're sort um, of in, you're sort of like partial to a bit of corruption every now and then well well I'd say yeah the corruption but that was something that was just rife in Italian football it wasn't necessarily Juventus specific and I I happen to have a bit of a soft spot for Fiorentina and okay. they were also involved in that scandal. And so I, I don't really want to bring this back into the nation's consciousness. So, um, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to sweep that under the carpet. Nice. And a nice plug of your, your job as part of Fiorentina's press department. Love that. <laughs> OK, let's move to a side in England. Uh, this is the Leeds 2003-2004 side. Um, I think Leeds generally have been one of the most hated teams in England um, pre-Bielsa. I, I think generally fans of opposition teams don't love them. Uh, a 2020 study found that they actually had the most chants sung about them from other clubs with a total of 117. So that's quite remarkable, um, <laughs> the effect they've had on others. And part of this is because of dirtiness on the pitch and a history of hooliganism off it. In fact, non-league side Telford United refused to host them in the third round of the FA Cup um, because of their ultras reputation. But on this occasion, they were even hated by their own fans. Uh, this was the side that got relegated. The team included Dominic Matteo, Jermaine Pennant and Mark Viduca. Uh, Leeds were in financial turmoil after mismanagement and a run of seven straight defeats would ultimately preempt their fate uh, fans kind of love to relish this failure. I think they were looking out for the Leeds results and hoping it was another defeat. So uh, another option for you there, Arthur. Yeah, um, a decent shout for sure. I think Leeds as a team, apologies to any Leeds fans listening. I just, I, I find that they their fans have a bit of a sense of entitlement because of the glory days. So on the rise back to the Premier League, um, you know, our friend Alex Williams, he was he was gleeful 
with mm. the uh, the rise to success. And I, I think that's, I think, you know, it's exciting uh, and everything, but I just, I just found, you know, that they were already talking about sort of top six, top 10 and stuff yeah, when okay. the immediate priority is avoiding relegation. So when they first came back up, I was a bit, a bit bitter towards them. I don't mind them as a club. And um, certainly that team, for every Dominic Matteo, you've got a, an Ian Hart mm. uh, or a Gary Kelly. That Ooh, feels like a kind of one-liner like advert for the podcast, actually. Yeah. <laughs> but also, I, I quite liked Mark Paducah. So um, I, I'm going to be honest, I was quite sad to see that team relegated. But there we go. Well, this is going really well so far. Um, number three, we've got RB Leipzig of 2016-17. So this club is one of the most hated in Germany because Germans feel the club doesn't fit into the ethos of their football they feel it's a corporate gimmick playing to the corporate needs. And such is the hatred against the club that during their first game against Dortmund in 2016, Dortmund fans refused to travel to watch the game, choosing to follow the game on the radio instead. Uh, it was Red Bull Leipzig's first season in the Bundesliga and they came second. I think the one redeeming trait about this team was that Ralph Hasenhutl was the manager. Yeah, I I was gonna gonna point that out, and actually their achievement in finishing second in the Bundesliga in that first season back up was pretty astounding. They had Timo Werner on absolutely cracking form. So Red Bull in football, I really admire what they've done in the sense that they've harnessed loads of absolutely brilliant youth talent and made it into a real institution. But equally, there's something fundamentally wrong, certainly in. Germany, where they've got the 50-50 rule of a company owning and managing a club. So yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I completely see where that sits them. You know, we've I mean we've had a similar sort of thing with Hoffenheim and Dietmar Hopp's ownership of them. They are deeply hated in Germany as well. Yeah, I think in Germany as a whole, RB Leipzig were very forcefully hated that season. So I think that's a really, really good shout. Okay, we've made an improvement there. Two more to go. Number four, Arsenal 92-93. Could have been any number of years that I chose, but under George Graham in the late 80s and early 90s, the club was often derisively referred to as boring, boring Arsenal. Club supporters being the smart Alex they were, um, adopted that mantle along with the song 1-0 to the Arsenal. And I picked this one because they won both cups that year, despite being incredibly dull to watch. Um, amongst the most hated in their team were Tony Adams, Nigel Winterburn and Martin Keown. Yeah, not a fan of that outfit one bit, I'm going to be honest. Yeah. George Graham, I've heard horrible things about George Graham from Arsenal fans. They just hated him. So, yeah, I mean... You know, but an outlet of Ian Wright, who's one of my favourite footballers, I'd say. Um, such a quality striker. That's a bit of a shining light in that team. And and to win both cups, despite finishing 10th in the league, is, yeah. is astonishing, frankly. Um, so there were some highlights with that team, but a lot of pretty unlikable players in that team. Nice. Okay, that's an option. And then the final option, I might have to give you a bit more background on this one. Um, Sheffield United, 2001-2002. A generally pretty unlikable team, which included Paul Pesca Solido, 
Michael Brown, Nick Montgomery, uh, and they were managed by Neil Warnock. They actually forced the only abandonment of a match in English football history due to a shortage of players. Going into the match, Sheffield United were comfortably mid-table with neither promotion or relegation possible. Uh, They were playing West Bromwich Albion, who were fighting for promotion to the Premier League. And there was already a bit of history between Georges Santos of Sheffield United and Andy Johnson, uh, who was a West Brom midfielder. Uh, United goalkeeper Simon Tracy was sent off in the ninth minute for deliberately handling outside the area. Um, Albion striker Scott Doby gave his side the lead going into half time, and Derek McGuinness doubled the lead in the 63rd minute, prompting Sheffield's manager Neil Warnock to make two substitutions. So on came Santos and Patrick Sufo, but both received red cards within moments. George Santos committed a dangerous two-footed tackle on Johnson, almost deliberately, and Sufo headbutted McInnes in the ensuing melee, so that put them down to eight men. United conceded a third goal with Dobie scoring a second of the afternoon, uh, and United midfielder Michael Brown and defender Robert Ullathorne suffered injuries that meant they could no longer take part in the match. Because Sheffield United had used all their substitutions, the referee, who'd already declined to send off both Brown and captain Keith Curl for clear red card offences, was forced to abandon the match in the 82nd minute. A week later, West Brom were awarded a 3-0 victory from the Football League, um, whereas Sheffield United received a whole load of bans and fines um, and Warnock faced allegations of cheating from manager uh, Gary Megson. So I suppose for sort of bringing the game into disrepute, I wanted to mention Sheffield United. Sufo was a bit of a cracking player at times as well. So um, I didn't even realise he played for Sheffield United. I, I mean, that's a fascinating story. I'd never heard that. And I mean, it it smacks of classic Warnock, really. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's a really, really worthy team of consideration. I'm I'm struggling here, Ben. I really am. So I think you kind of you kind of ruled out Juventus and Leeds. I, th- I think, I think Leipzig me, and Arsenal was where you you kind of seemed to dwell. Yeah, I think for me it's actually Sheffield United have come into the reckoning here. I, I think I've got to go simply because of how unique what they've done is. I think I've got to go for RB Leipzig. Wow. We, I mean, we've alienated five groups of fans there. But we're definitely not going to have any RB Leipzig listeners. We need our Stuttgart fans to come in and back us up. Yeah, I think Sebastian will be delighted, I hope. <laughs> Left midfield now, and it's a transfer saga. Ooh. It's Peter Odom Wingy. Oh, wow. Yes, great. Tell us more. After enjoying a successful start to his career in Nigeria, Belgium and France with Lille, during which he got a taste of Champions League football, he signed for Lokomotiv Moscow, becoming the focal point of their attack. 21 goals in 75 games attracted the attentions of West Brom, who signed him in the summer of 2010 for just 2.7 million. Shortly after signing for West Brom, photographs showed... Locomotive Moscow fans celebrating the sale of Odomwingi through the use of racist banners targeted at the player. Um, one banner included the image of a banana and read, thanks, West Brom. I mean, that's 
you know, emblematic of Russian football, really, isn't it? Um, and before West Brom's game against Tottenham Hotspur in September 2010, West Brom fans unfurled a banner saying, thanks, Locomotive, accompanied by a picture of Odin Wingy celebrating his winner on debut against Sunderland, which I quite nice. enjoyed. Yeah. I mean, there's no doubt his time at the Hawthorns was immensely successful. He got an incredible 15 league goals in his first season, uh, followed that up with 10 in his second season. Um, and a stat that regular listener Mike Dunnett Stone absolutely loves, um, which is uh, that he's got three Player of the Month awards, which puts him above the likes of Eden Hazard, Ryan Giggs, and Zola. Um, so, I mean, he's a serious, serious baller. Uh, he just had to go and ruin it all, though. Transfer deadline day, January 2013. He was frustrated at being consigned to the bench by a free-scoring Romelu Lukaku. Uh, and he launched a tirade against his club on Twitter for reportedly rejecting a QPR bid. Um, soon after, he'd be spotted outside Loftus Road in his Range Rover. Um, and he gives this interview. Will you definitely be a QPR player as of this evening? Uh, well, it's not 100%. It's not sorted yet, but I hope West Brom will be happy with what... Uh what uh, they will get and of course uh, they're hoping to get few players themselves so I just hope things will go well in the last few hours and you finally got your wish after speaking on Twitter over the weekend uh, well you know had to push a little bit so <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry it's just so cringe he's so confident a deal will be struck between West Brom and QPR the, the, the reference um, to, to QPR is we it's honestly just oh, it's ooh, makes, makes me, me shiver. It's um, Amos Murphy uh, wrote in an article, like a humiliated employee scurrying back into the office after one too many at a work party, Odom Wingy returned to the West Brom side a month later to a chorus of boos and a backdrop of controversy. His estranged relationship with the Baggies faithful would never be repaired and he finally left the club in that same summer. Oh. It was just a, a horrible ending to, frankly, a, a really, really good time at West Brom. And I understand his grievance at not being given first-team football when he was so free-scoring at one point, but to actually go to the extent of driving yourself up to QPR. I know he thought that a bit had been accepted, but it's just so awkward. Yeah, it is the definition of awkward. I, I feel for him in a way. Um, I'm interested to read that his international career could have been so different. He chose to play for Nigeria, where his father was born. Um, but Peter Odenwingi was actually born in Uzbekistan and brought up in, <laughs> in Uzbekistan and Russia. So um, wow. what might have been? How, well, uh, all the more bad that, that Russians were so racist towards him. Yeah, really. maybe he maybe he sort of drove up to uh, the Uzbekistan embassy or something and did an interview outside saying, oh, we're, we're going to qualify for the World Cup and then had to sort of drive back to Nigeria once he'd realised yeah. he couldn't switch allegiances again. So true. So Peter's on the wingy. Um, we have a position that's up for grabs as usual. So uh, we have nominations coming in from journalists and friends of the show. Can't wait to uh, announce the poll at the end. That's for the centre midfielder. Uh, but there is, of course, another player in the centre of the park. And Arthur, that's yours as well? It is indeed. And it's Steve Hodge. 
Ooh, Hodgie. I don't know much about this this chap. Neither did I, really. Um, but again, I did a bit of a dig deep into his history, and I discovered that one particular team is not a fan. Um, he's seen as a bit of a Nottingham Forest legend. 206 appearances, 50 goals from centre midfield, uh, two times League Cup winner, uh, a real favourite of Brian Clough. Uh, additionally, he's now renowned for his connection to none other than Diego Maradona. Uh, after the infamous Hand of God incident in the 1986 World Cup, he swapped shirts with the villain himself. Oh. Uh, and after Diego's death, he was inundated with requests from people who wished to buy the shirt. And then finally, in May of this year, 2022, uh, the shirt sold for £7.1 million. Pounds. Um, which is a record for a shirt worn during a sporting event. It's astonishing, isn't it? Wow, that's that's very cool. So he he must have been a, an England international, Steve Hodge. He was indeed. Um, his move to Villa from Forest was where his villainy would manifest appropriately, actually, considering it's Villa. Yes. He was, of course, an England international, um, an exciting signing for Villa, um, however, it soon became clear that he had bigger ambitions um, than battling the first division drop, and he wanted to pursue them. Uh, in a 4-1 defeat to Norwich, he carelessly had a back pass intercepted, giving away a goal, and seemed pretty unperturbed by the error. Uh, he angered the already disillusioned faithful by trying to engineer a transfer away from Villa, which he did mid-season, moving to Spurs. To make matters worse, he scored a brace for Spurs in their 3-0 victory over Villa at White Hart Lane in the January of that year, and Villa finished bottom and were relegated. Furthermore, he took great delight in scoring a late equaliser for Leeds against Villa at Ellen Road in September 1992. It really is the far cry from players who refuse to celebrate against their former clubs nowadays. Yeah. He left Villa very early on and then took great pleasure in compounding their misery at any point he could. Subsequently, uh, in recent years, he was invited back to a Villa game and Villa fan Grant Adams apparently pretended to throttle him. I perused the Heroes and Villains fan site and there are a few classic comments. Some of them were as follows. How times have changed. Pretended to throttle. Pfft. Once upon a time, nothing short of a public lynching from a floodlight pylon would have sufficed. <laughs> um, Lucky Eddie says, since when was his name allowed on here? And the Melandro follows up with, agreed, darkened my mood. Oh, <laughs> wow. I also quite liked Pete3206 said, for me... His only rival for biggest wanker to ever play for Villa is Alpe. And I'm wow. pleased to say Alpe Ozilan has featured in 11 as well. So yes, he certainly got has. Both villains in the, uh, in the 11 now. That's brilliant. Yeah. And, and it has always interested me where the cutoff point is between a player returning to their old club and getting booed and returning to their old club and getting a nice round of applause. And it's fairly obvious that Steve Hodge was on the, the booing side of things, hence the, the public enemy moniker. The right-hand side of this public enemy 11 is pretty short, Arthur, um, because our right winger 
uh, was just five foot seven ahead of Nelson Vivas. And that's Nacho Novo. Oh, a Rangers legend. That's right. Yeah. A versatile Spanish forward player, comfortable through the middle or out wide. Uh, He made a name for himself in Scottish football. Having moved from Huesca to Dundee in 2002, he'd scored 25 goals in his second SPL season, including four in the UEFA Cup. And this attracted the interest of Scotland's giants, both Celtic and Rangers. After Celtic's bid was accepted, they thought they had a new hero. But much to their surprise, Novo stalled the deal, showed a lack of interest in their contract, and ultimately, perhaps inexplicably, signed for Rangers instead. And straight away, Celtic had a new figure of hatred. And their hatred was fuelled by Novo's success. He scored 25 goals in his opening season, including the goal that won Rangers the league title. He'd ultimately score 73 in six years for Rangers, including most controversially six in old firm games. And in truth, Novo did rile up the Celtic fans with some of his behaviour. He was notoriously easily put to grounds, accused of diving and always in the referee's ear, as well as openly sharing his hatred of Celtic in interviews, describing them as a sham of a club. He said of the abuse he received when public enemy number one, in the four years I've been here, I've been through everything. Every time I face Celtic, the tyres of my car are punctured, the windows of my house are broken, and I've been sent threatening letters. It's a pretty disagreeable situation. It, it was pretty vile, some of the things that were targeted at Novo. Obviously, to some extent, it was it came about because he turned down the Celtic move. But yeah, not, not the nicest side of fan behaviour. I think it's a badge of honour, though, if you're considered public enemy number one with your team's rival. I mean, that would make him even more loved by Rangers. And and clearly he is a club legend there. Um, I I don't know the answer to this and probably you don't either. But I know that the prevalent religion in Spain is Catholicism. So I was I was interested because obviously that's a a religion. And so he's signed for the, the Protestant team. Um, over the Catholic team, which I think is interesting. Yeah, and there's there's actually been a religious element to a lot of his kind of hatred throughout his career. This actually happened when later in his career he joined Glen Torren in Northern Ireland, uh, which was a controversial move, and he was warned by police that he was under a death threat from dissident Republicans. He was given a six-game ban there for a headbutt and continued really to be a controversial character great pick ben absolutely love that onto the strike force mm. and the first of the barrage of goals is An Jung Huan. (laughs) Brilliant. (laughs) What a player. Known for the 2002 World Cup. Um, It was the first to be held outside Europe or the Americas. Japan and South Korea joint hosted it. It was to be one to remember for South Korean striker An Jung Huan. This was a player who started his career in the K-League with Busan Daewoo Royals. He would be selected in the league's best 11 in his first season and followed it up by becoming the K-League MVP the next season. 
Um, this prompted a move to Perugia on loan, um, South Korea's first player to play in Serie A. Um, so a real mantle there for him. Unfortunately, his time there wasn't a huge success, not just in goal scoring, but also, uh, unfortunately, another who was subjected to um, experiences of racism from fans in the league and also players, um, incredibly. Uh, he arrived at the World Cup as one of his country's most important players. And like all good storylines, they would go on to meet Italy in the last 16. A red nightmare was how Gazzetta dello Sport described a last 16 tie that Italy should have had wrapped up long before and went on to score a dramatic 117th minute winner. Many in Italy felt a win was beyond them for reasons outside of their control. They alleged that the refereeing was very, very substandard. Corriere de Serra newspaper said, Italy has been thrown out of a dirty World Cup where referees and linesmen are used as hitmen. No other team in the entire history of the World Cup has suffered so many injustices. Despite the poor refereeing, Anne was seen as the chief culprit by Perugia chairman Gauci, who personally moved to end Anne's spell in Perugia, explaining, I have no intention of, of paying a salary to someone who has ruined Italian soccer. I'm a nationalist and I regard such behaviour not only as an affront to Italian pride, but also an offence to a country which two years ago opened its doors to him. I mean, how That's you... insane. It's ridiculous. I mean, the player in an unbelievably important World Cup for South Korea, as they were the co-hosts, scores an amazing goal, or not an amazing goal, but a dramatic goal, to put Italy out of the World Cup and he's blamed for it and they end his loan spell. It's I mean, they, they, they actually tried to... Um, <laughs> I mean, his two-year loan spell with Perugia was about to end anyway, but incredibly, Gauci later attempted to backtrack and try and keep him there for a third season. Obviously, that, that offer was rejected <laughs> and said, I will no longer discuss my transfer to Perugia who attacked my character instead of congratulating me for a goal in the World Cup. And I completely agree with that. It's yeah. hideous. It's absolute insanity. Um, I remember the controversy of that goal. He was known as the Lord of the Ring, I noticed, because of his uh, iconic celebration where he would kiss his wedding ring. Yeah, love that. I, if In case anyone isn't watching, which is everyone, because it's a podcast, Arthur just kissed his finger. <laughs> um, and Archie Kwan... He, he also played for Shimizu S-Pulse, one of our favourite sides. Uh, we'll sides. Yeah, listen back to the Diddy Play There 11 to find out more about them. And also Dalian Scheid, who we've we've talked about in the past, about Dong Fangju and how much we love them. We, we have uh, the Lord of the Ring line. I, yeah. I completely get why he would do that. He's married to former Miss Korea. Oh, wow. Um, so, I, I mean, yeah, I think that's a pretty pretty good coup from Anne. Well done. And Wikipedia says he's noted for his model-like looks. Mm. And he now regularly appears on Korean TV. So, um, well done, Anne. He seems to have done well in his Anne. career. Brilliant. But public enemy yeah. with Perugia fans and their uh, their chairman and, and Italy fans. He just, mm. that country, not big fans. Not big fans. Not big fans of Anne. Alongside Arne, it's Gilles de Bilder. 
<laughs> is that really the builder's name? Like yes. That. Friends of Bob the Builder. Um, he was a recurring 90s and noughties name, a Belgian hitman who, for some reason, I clearly remember from Euro 2000. Um, so I was quite surprised to find out he only actually played one tournament game for Belgium in his career. And that was the 2-0 defeat to Turkey that I remember him from. So I don't know what the hell that was all about. But anyway, he will probably go down as one of the most controversial footballers of his era. And amidst controversy became an unpopular figure amongst many. Um, the start of his career was supreme. Uh, Indracht Alst, he won the Belgian Player of the Year in 94. Uh, he joined Anderlecht in 95, managing a further 22 goals in 46 matches. Um, but then at 25, his first major controversy on the pitch. It was a match between Anderlecht and Alst, um, and he punched Chris Porter in the face, which broke his nose and injured his eye. He was pilloried by the press and even spent a night in jail over the incident. And this only served to expose his past. Um, De Builder had received a suspended two-year prison sentence in 92 for headbutting two Boy Scout leaders. And although it was an understandably emotional time with his dad in hospital, De Builder had also headbutted a hospital nurse when he was denied <laughs> admission to his father's room. I'm I'm sorry I was reading that on Wikipedia like before you said it (laughs) (laughs) not that we ever copy Wikipedia headbutted two boy scouts (laughs) yeah um yeah I I don't know I don't know whether to laugh I I don't know it's weird it's weird um I feel for him in a way uh and and Anderlecht's head coach suggested he should actually see a psychiatrist Um, So we're talking about someone here who was fiery beyond belief and was labelled as the most hated striker in Europe. Still, after all that history, Sheffield Wednesday signed him. Yes. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Um, Because he was a potent threat. And um, unfortunately, he also became public enemy at Sheffield Wednesday. He joined in 99. He scored 10 goals, um, but that was unable to prevent them from being relegated. Um, And he was seen as a mercenary by the fans, taking the paycheck without his heart truly being in it. He made his feelings known for the Owls, saying, remaining at Sheffield would be bad for my career, no matter how well they pay me. Uh, And he also claimed that the Premier League was only good because of its foreign imports. He was critical of the owners, calling them pig-headed. And even later in his career, he continued to be a bit of a controversial character with the press. When he was playing back in Belgian football, he campaigned for a European ban on cat and dog fur um, (laughs) and was fined by his club in 2006 for missing a match to mourn the death of one of his dogs. Um, In fact, his love of dogs was very well known. He'd been with Sheffield Wednesday for a couple of months when News of the World claimed to have proof that he'd smuggled his two pet Dobermans past customs illegally. And he's since starred on Dancing on Ice. So there's a load of things there that that you wouldn't have thought were in the same sentence or anything to do with the public and enemy 11. But um, I just couldn't help but bring up the builder in this context. I really I didn't even I don't think I'd even heard of him. 25 cats for Belgium, uh, though. Yeah, you obviously hadn't watched that Euro 2000 2-0 2-0 defeat to Turkey with quite so much detail as I had. Mm. You 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 were always been a Euro 2000 fan, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, I was really into that game. Mm. Great. 
Well, we're moving on to our up for grabs players. So first up, we have a nomination of sorts from Chris Lee, who is on Twitter at Football Art C. Lee. He does absolutely fantastic art of certain themes within football. Um, so it might be Premier League teams wearing red or blue or green and, dro- and joining them up uh, in the form of tube lines across the country and train lines across the country. And they look fantastic. Uh, Chris has shared with us his map of football chaos, which charts some of the villains across football through time. And you'll see that on our Twitter page uh, at 11pod. And uh, I'd urge you to check out a lot of his art. So Chris has actually nominated Vinnie Jones. He's uh, sent in a little note saying, as villainous midfielders go, I'd have to say Vincent Jones. I can't imagine opposing players relishing the prospect of playing against Vinny. Capable of all sorts of football filth, unpredictable nastiness was the name of the game. As a fan of the Wednesday, his association with dirty leads and the repugnant blunts means he's even more of a villain. Love Thank you so that. much for that nomination, Chris. Love that. Yeah, he belongs in this vote 100%. Uh, and next in our public enemy 11 vote uh, is a suggestion from Anthony Richardson. Uh, Anthony is a, a fantastic comedian. He's one of exploding heads. He's on a podcast called Sports Horn. Do check him out. He's up and coming and he's a Reading fan. Let's see who Anthony nominates. I'm choosing Stig Tufting in central midfield, a man associated with the Hells Angels as a player a man who made Thomas Graveson look like a bald loofer, a man nicknamed the Lawnmower because he had sharp teeth and drank petrol, a man whose time at Bolton was cut short because he had to serve a four-month prison sentence for assaulting a restaurant owner. But when you dig into his backstory, you can understand why he had issues. When Stig was 13, he came back home from youth training to discover that his father had shot and killed his mother, then had turned the gun on himself leaving Stig to discover both bodies in one of the rooms in his house upstairs. Unimaginable. I mean, that would break me. That would break literally anyone I knew. But Stig, aged 13, not only played an under-14 cup final the day after, he was awarded man of the match too. Incredible and a very tragic character, to be honest. And if he turned up at your house offering to mow your lawn, you would accept Gosh, yeah, that does feel appropriate. We've talked before about how tragic the tale of Stig Tufting is, um, but there's no denying he was a, a loose cannon, as you said earlier, Arthur. He really was. That's an excellent nomination. And joining those two in the vote will be Nigel de Jong. Oh, Nigel. Yeah, he's drawn criticism over his aggressive style of play. Nicknames include De Razenmeer, which means the lawnmower, Uh, the terrier and the destroyer so um that really sums up his his game in one um a few of the incidents he was involved in he fractured the leg of bolton's u.s midfielder Stuart holden uh in the 2010 world cup final he kicked javi alonso in the chest which is one of the worst tackles i've i've seen perhaps second only to oscar goban uh against bournemouth for southampton back in I don't know. I can't remember what year it was. Probably 2008 or so, 2009. Just horrific. Check that one out on Twitter. 
Against Newcastle, he gave Hatem Benafra a double fracture to his left tibia and fibula. Uh, this style of play earned him a title as the most violent footballer in the world, according to L'Equipe. And in a did-he-play-there moment, did you realise he played for LA Galaxy? No, I didn't, actually. No, he joined David over there, David Beckham. He was suspended for three games retrospectively after a red card really should have been given for a Darlington Nagbe. Um, so, yeah, a public enemy due to his horrific tackling, violent attitude, and I think pretty bang average punditry since he retired. <laughs> Love that. And our final public enemy in the vote is Felipe Mello. Yes. Good yeah. shout. Heavily tattooed, combative midfielder, still playing actually for Fluminense, age 39. Uh, once played for Juventus, Galatasaray, Inter Milan, so decent on his day. Um, but it's actually in native Brazil where he's widely criticised. And perhaps unfairly, he's public enemy. I think more of a scapegoat, to be honest. Think back to the 2010 World Cup, Arthur, and a stinker for Melo on the biggest stage. In Brazil's quarterfinal against the Netherlands, he provided the assist for Rubinho's 10th minute opener before Melo himself slightly touched a Wesley Schneider cross, which at first was recorded as an own goal, but later credited to Schneider. Schneider then put the Dutch 2-1 ahead before Melo was then sent off by referee Yuichi Nishimura for a violent stamp on Dutch winger Arjen Robben. On Brazil's return home after the World Cup, Melo took the brunt of the criticism of the fans as they threw insults, pushed and shoved him. Actually, the match was already lost with 15 minutes to go when he got sent off. So I feel like it's one that should be debated. If Brazil hijacks this vote, no doubt Melo wins and he's in the 11. But I don't know whether I'm going to be voting for him. So there are your options. Please do head to Twitter at 11pod to vote on who you want to be the last component of the Public Enemy 11. On the bench for me, uh, it's just Danny Osvaldo or Pablo Osvaldo. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, machine gun celebrations when he scored, machine gunning the fans, uh, headbutting Jose Font, becoming a rock star in Argentina. He's got it all. He's been actually, I think, on a few benches, um, but never actually made an eleven. So maybe he'll uh, he'll get in one in the future. Yes, and also joining him uh, riding the pines is someone who thinks he's a public enemy, but I'm not actually sure he is really. It's Don Masson. Uh, He missed the penalty kick in the 3-1 defeat against Peru in the 1978 World Cup, which ultimately sent Scotland home. And he's since written an autobiography, which he titled Still Saying Sorry. So kind of (laughs) tragic, really. He, uh, yeah, he's really felt the brunt of the pressure from that moment. Not ideal. So running you through our 11 today. In goal, it's Antonios Nikopolidis, left-back Ben Thatcher, centre-back pairing of Alan Stubbs and Martin Taylor. On the right, it's Nelson Vivas. On the left of midfield, it's Peter Odomwingi. In the middle, it's Steve Hodge and a choice of yours. On the right, Nacho Novo. And up front, Anne Jung Kwan and Gilles de Bilder. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 